Well, if you would, please turn again in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew 27, verses 1 through 26. As I worked on this sermon this week, something happened to me that happens quite often. A line from a Bob Dylan song kept running through my mind. I imbibed a lot of Dylan in my 20s and not a lot of it has left me. This is the song. Who killed Davy Moore? Why and what's the reason for? You've maybe not heard that one. It's on the Bootleg series, Volumes 1 to 3, on the first disc, if you want to check it out. Who killed Davy Moore? Davy Moore was the featherweight uh, champion in boxing um, in the 60s. But he was, uh, he died of brain damage as he was defending his title against a Cuban boxer named Sugar Ramos. Politicians, religious leaders, journalists, they responded in criticism. Criticism to the boxing industry as a whole. Um, This industry shouldn't even exist. It kills men like Davey Moore. And so Bob Dylan, just weeks after these events and kind of following this line of criticism penned this song which became a staple in his shows in 63 and and 64 as well the structure of the song is really simple it walks through all of the people that would have been involved in Davy Moore's death it begins with the referee it moves on through uh, different people like the journalists that would have been the sports writers, the gamblers, uh, his manager, and even uh, Sugar Ramos himself. And as he walks through each individual in the song, each one, and I won't sing for you again, (laughs) they say, it wasn't me that made him fall. You can't blame me at all. Our passage this morning covers the trial of Jesus before Pilate. There are many involved, many involved in the death of Jesus Christ. But many of them seem to be saying, it wasn't me that made him fall. You can't blame me at all. And so the question remains as we approach this passage, who killed? Jesus, our Lord, why and what's the reason for? Those are the questions that I hope with God's help I can answer this morning. But before we get into that, let's simply read the passage. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. As Brandon likes to say, we will be in chapter number 27, beginning in verse number 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. 
And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. How many times I've read these passages? Year in and year out, they never cease to move me. 
But I simply have two questions I want to answer this morning. One, who's responsible for Jesus' death? Two, why? What's the reason for Jesus' death? Let's begin with the first question, who's responsible? This passage is really simple at one level. It shows or gives us or develops along, maybe the way to put it, a basic plot line where you have a conflict introduced at the beginning. That conflict is resolved at the end of the passage. The conflict comes at us in verses 1 and 2 where we read that the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. You could translate that word took counsel as they decided. They made a decision together to put him to death. Well, they had already made this decision before the trial with the Sanhedrin. So what is meant here is likely that they're deciding how they're going to make their case to Pilate. What charges will they bring against Jesus before Pilate so that he might put him to death? Then, after they made this decision, we read that they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So the tension in the passage is whether or not Pilate will do what they want him to do, which is to kill Jesus. We know how the story ends, um, so it's not a spoiler for me to take you to the end of the passage in verse 26 and see that following Jesus' trial, that's exactly what happened. Having scourged Jesus... Pilate delivered him to be crucified. So, just quite simply, the way this story develops, the chief priests and the elders deliver him over to Pilate, and then at the end, Pilate delivers him over to be crucified. A really simple plot. And yet, there's something quite complicated in the storyline of this passage. I don't know if you noticed it, when we read it. I didn't notice it the first time I read it or the second time I did either. But that's this story about Judas. Did you notice that it doesn't take place in chronological order with the rest of what's going on in this passage? Look at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and scribes. So what's being described here in verses 3 to 10 actually took place after verse 26. What happened with Judas happened after Jesus was delivered over to be crucified, even though it is told to us before he was delivered over to be crucified. Why does Matthew do this? 
That's why all biblical writers sometimes take things out of order. It's for the sake of emphasis. He wants what's going on with Judas and the chief priests and scribes here to be an interpretive grid through which to read the entire trial of Jesus. Some of the language that is used in verse 4 is also picked up in verse 24, which further leads me to believe that Matthew wants us to see something that we may be prone to miss as we give a casual reading of these verses. Notice the language in verse 4. When Judas brings the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests and the elders and says to them, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they say to him, What is that to us? See to it yourself. In other words, they're saying, You can't blame me at all. You take responsibility for Jesus' death. Well, notice the same words, a cluster of them, innocence, blood, and this statement that they make are all repeated in verse 24. After the trial, Pilate sees that Jesus is innocent, and so he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate saying to the crowds, like the chief priests and the elders said to Judas, you can't blame me at all. You take responsibility for Jesus' death. This lack of ordering of the story or the out of order way of telling, the repetition in verses 4 and 24 are drawing our attention to the question of who's responsible for the death of Jesus and what is the significance of being the one who sends Jesus to the cross. So, who is responsible and what is the significance? Let's begin by looking at Judas a little bit more closely and the chief priests and elders too and then we'll come to the end and look at the crowd. So I'm going to deal with the bookends first in answering this question, who's responsible? Then we'll look at the guts of the passage and the trial to see what the reason for it is. Judas. When he hears that Jesus had been condemned to death, we are told that he changed his mind changed his mind. In other words, he felt remorse for betraying Jesus. So did Judas repent when it was all said and done? Sorry to say, friends, but he didn't. Feeling guilt for your sin is good, It's a good necessary component, but it doesn't equal repentance. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning to God, specifically to His Son, Jesus, in faith. And we don't see that here. 
2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Friends, if you are feeling the grief of your sin, the responsibility of your sin, that is a good thing, but let it lead you to Jesus, to repentance. That's not what happened with Judas. He's suffering worldly grief. He knows he's betrayed innocent blood. And so he brings the blood money back to the chief priests and elders and they tell him, you take responsibility yourself. And so he does. He does. Takes it all on himself. He goes out and he does what 40,000 Americans did last year. He took his life. He throws the pieces of silver into the temple. He departs. He goes out and he hangs himself. Friends, it's right to see our responsibility, to see our sin, to see our guilt It's even right to see the brokenness in this world. The sinfulness for what it is. Judas got that right. But his response to that realization was wrong. And heaven forbid it happened to any of you. Repent of your sin. And turn to Jesus. Don't take matters into your own hands. That's Judas. What about the chief priests and the elders? They don't acknowledge their responsibility with their words, but their actions show they know they bear responsibility. I think they've got Deuteronomy 23 in their mind when they say, it's not lawful to put the pieces of silver into the treasury since it's blood money. So they do what would have been acceptable, which is purchase a field to become a cemetery for foreigners. I want you to notice something here briefly, somewhat as an aside, and yet critical as we think about how we respond to this passage. As Judas comes to see his responsibility in Jesus' death, he deals with it through taking his own life. The religious leaders, they're not willing to admit it, but they see it too. How do they deal with it? Religious action. They're as dark as night. But they're like, let's do a good deed that's in accordance with the law. That'll cover our sin. Try as they might to remove the stain, to remove their guilt, we all know that they remain guilty. But in case you're in doubt, Matthew tells us. In verses 9 to 10, he says, All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. This is a very complicated quotation. 
I think, the most complicated in Matthew. But it's a very creative quotation as well. Matthew tells us that this is what Jeremiah said. But go look at your little your your little cross-references. You won't find many Jeremiah passages there. You're going to find quotations from Zechariah 11. So what's Matthew doing here? I mean, did he write in his research paper and he got his note cards um, out of order? Citing the wrong source? No. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He appeals to Jeremiah because he wants Jeremiah in our head. He quotes Zechariah because he wants Zechariah in our head. And he wants us to see not simply that what's happening to Jesus is a fulfillment of Scripture, but that there is a pattern that happens throughout redemptive history that is being repeated in this very incident with the trial of Jesus. Jeremiah 19 is on Matthew's mind. I'm confident of it. There's too many parallels to deny it. In Jeremiah 19, God tells Jeremiah to go buy a potter's vessel, a pot, a clay pot, and then Jeremiah to prophesy to Israel and say to them this, because they've worshipped idols, but not only that, get this, because they've shed innocent blood, He will bring disaster upon Jerusalem. Then he said to Jeremiah, Now break the pot and say this, So I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Sound similar? Let's go on to Zechariah 11. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but just by way of review. God calls Zechariah to serve as a shepherd to a flock that's doomed to destruction. Why is it doomed to destruction? Because God is angry with the so-called shepherds of Israel who are not caring for His flock. How do they respond to Zechariah? The same way they respond to all prophets. They reject Him. So, Jeremiah says, fine, I quit. Give me my wages. They pay him 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave. Jeremiah breaks the staff that is in his hand. The staff that is called favor. That represents God's favor. He throws the pieces of silver back into the temple to the potter. Who also would have served probably as a metal worker. Likely, as Don Carson says, to melt that silver down and to make it into an idol to say, you've rejected me as your God, here's your God. And this is what's coming. The fall. The fall of Jerusalem. The details aren't pound for pound, but do you see the connections? With Matthew 27... The leaders, the chief priests, the elders, even Jesus' closest disciple have rejected the shepherd that He has sent to them. They have shed innocent blood. 
And so, as Jesus predicted in the Olivet Discourse, Jerusalem's coming down. The people who identified as the people of God rejected the Savior that God had sent. And so judgment was coming. This prophecy is not only significant for understanding the responsibility of Judas and the chief priests. What I think is happening with the repeated language in verse 4 and in verse 24 is it's showing us that what Judas is guilty of is what all of the crowds are guilty of. We think Judas is this special case. But the repeated language, see to it yourself. And Judas does. Then Pilate says, see to it yourself. And the crowd say, his blood be on us and on our children. That's their way of saying we will bear responsibility for this decision. You go ahead, Pilate. You let Barabbas go free. The insurrectionists, the revolutionary. We don't want Jesus, the Redeemer. This pattern continued with them about 33 years later. They're following other revolutionaries like Barabbas to try and deal with Rome. Didn't work out so well for them. The temple was desecrated. The walls of Jerusalem came down. The pattern is repeated. The people of God reject their God. God brings judgment upon them. It happened in Jeremiah's day. It happened in Jesus' day. Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Is it Judas? You better believe it. Is it the chief priests and the elders? Yep. What about Pilate? Yes. The crowds? Yes. All of them. All of them. Responsible for the death of Jesus. And yet, as we've been learning, who's ultimately responsible? This is God's doing. This is God's will. Not my will, but yours be done. How do I know that? The book of Acts in two places makes it very clear that while everybody on the scene in Matthew 27 is responsible for Jesus' death, it is ultimately God the Father who is responsible. Acts 2, verse 23. Peter's preaching a sermon at Pentecost and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Or later in Acts 4, when the church is praying in the face of persecution, listen to what they say. Notice the agents involved. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, they're speaking to God, whom you anointed, who were? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. While there are many sinners who are responsible for Jesus' death, it happened on God's watch and according to God's plan. God is responsible for Jesus' death. And why did the Father send the Son to the cross? To pay the penalty for the guilty who were on mirac- I mean, marvelous display in this passage. But if the Father sent the Son to pay for the guilty, then who's ultimately responsible for His death? God ultimately, but all of us. It was our sin that held Him there until it was accomplished. But now I'm getting ahead of myself moving into the reason for Jesus' death, so why don't we turn there now? Everybody in our passage is guilty of sin, responsible for Jesus' death. Everyone guilty. That's what we're meant to see. Actually, that's not what we're meant to see. Everybody guilty is there to help us see the one who is not guilty. The one who's on trial. He's the only one innocent. It is Jesus. Judas has seen his innocence. As the trial progresses, it becomes clear that even Pilate sees Jesus as innocent. In his trial, he asks him two questions, trying to determine whether or not he's guilty of a crime deserving of death. The first one is telling. It says, are you the king of the Jews? Probably the chief priests and elders said he said he's the king of the Jews because if he claims to be a king like this, he could be guilty of sedition. And sedition is a crime worthy of death, and that's what they want. So are you the king of the Jews is the first question. It makes sense. And he says, you have said so. We learned from Brandon last week that you have said so is basically a way of saying yes, but... Yes, I am the king of the Jews, but not in the way you think. Um, It's not just this little plot of land in Palestine that I rule over. Once I'm raised, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, and I'm coming back in the clouds of heaven. I'm going to be given a dominion, an everlasting one over all people. But you don't really need to know that right now. So for now, I'll just say you have said so. And at this, is the last thing that Jesus has to say. No more words out of his mouth at his trial. So Pilate asked him a second question. Do you not hear the things they're testifying against you, then we read again, but Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. And this greatly amazed Pilate. Likely amazed, 
Amazed in Matthew is usually positive because he sees that he is innocent and he's not standing up for himself. The reason I know that I sees that he's innocent is in verse 18. Matthew tells us he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Then we go on to read that his wife said to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Go read Matthew 1 and 2. There's a number of dreams in there, and they're all from God. God has shown Pilate's wife that Jesus is innocent. He is a righteous man, and yet he doesn't breathe a word at his defense, and this amazes Pilate. And it should amaze us as well. The reason it should amaze us is when we hear that he remains silent, what does it make us think of? should make us think of, if you're familiar with your Bible, Isaiah 53, 7, which says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that was before its shears silent, so He opened not His mouth. We are meant to see in Jesus' trial before Pilate that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. We are meant to see everybody here guilty, Jesus innocent. We are meant to see our own guilt and the guilt of those here. But then when we hear He remains silent, we are to remember He has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus came to save His people from their sins. It was announced in chapter 1. It's being played out here. But it's drawn out in dramatic irony in the next scene. A scene that many of you are very familiar with, but is quite profound, even for those who are familiar with it. We're told that there was a custom during the Passover that the governor would release one prisoner, Not because he was innocent, but just because it was the custom to release one prisoner. The crowds already had a guy in mind to be released. His name was Barabbas. He was a notorious prisoner, we're told. Like I mentioned, he's likely an insurrectionist. He is a revolutionary. He's wanting to get Rome off of Israel's back, off of the Jews' back. It's ironic, Jesus is put forward as somebody potentially guilty of sedition, potentially, where this guy was arrested for being an insurrectionist. And yet, who do they ask for? Pilate doesn't know all that's going on beyond the scenes, and so... Knowing that Jesus is innocent, he seeks to set him free, asking the crowds, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus? Barabbas' full name was probably Jesus Barabbas, which means Jesus, son of a father. Who do you want? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus 
who is called the Christ. They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? That's really the question before you this morning as well. They said, let him be crucified. Pilate again lets us know that he sees Jesus as innocent. He says, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And then we read in verse 26 that that's what happened. He released Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Friends, this is the gospel in a nutshell. Most of you, you already feel it, just telling the story again. But just to make it as plain as day, the gospel is this. The innocent, sinless Son of God went to the cross so that the guilty can go free. That's the reason that Jesus died. Everyone in the story is guilty of innocent blood. But that innocent blood was worth a lot more than 30 pieces of silver. It was the price to pay for the sins of God's people. Everyone in this story, friends, they are trying to rid themselves of Jesus' blood. Judas throws the coins back into the temple and then he goes and hangs himself. Did that get the job done? Did he get the guilt, the stain washed out? Pilate literally washes his hands in front of the entire crowd. But does it make him clean? Everybody in this story is trying to get Jesus' blood off their hands to deal with their guilt. All of us are seeking to do the same. They are all like Lady Macbeth crying out, Out, damned spot! But as Leo the Great said, Washing hands doesn't cleanse the defiled soul. All the water in the world cannot wash blood from a guilty man's hands. Hear this, friends. Only blood removes blood. Only Jesus' innocent blood that was shed can deal with the blood guilt that we have in our sin. The crowds take responsibility for Jesus' death. They say, His blood be on us and our children. And here's the thing. I heard Joe amening this earlier. Jesus' blood will be on everyone. The question is, 
in what way will his blood be on you? Will it simply announce your guilt, your sin, your complicity, participation in Jesus' death? Because it does that for all of us. It's on us in that way. Or will it also be on you in declaring your pardon? In what way will the blood of Jesus be on you? We're all trying to get out the stain of guilt and shame for our sins. But there's only one way. Only blood can wash away blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing. But the blood of Jesus. So it all depends on how you respond to Jesus. There's nobody in this story responding rightly to Jesus. But now the Gospel goes forth, announcing the good news, calling you to repent. Truly, not like Judas. Calling you to put your trust in Jesus, not in your religious duties like the scribes the chief priests and the Pharisees, but to fall on the mercy of Christ, to cling to the blood of Christ. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we need two things this morning. To see our guilt And to see the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus. Help us to see both. There are those here who need to respond for the first time today through faith and repentance, admitting their sin, clinging to Jesus. In your power, accomplish that work. There are those that need to see their sin and see the blood is sufficient as a way to be reminded with thankful hearts of what you've done and to live lives of praise and worship before you. Help us to do that as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.